0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, at Jericho. And Balak, The son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the people of Amah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as Yahweh speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for Yahweh has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam, and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. But Balaam answered, and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of Yahweh my God, to do less or more. So you, too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more Yahweh will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night, and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled, because he went. And the angel of Yahweh took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of Yahweh stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of Yahweh went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of Yahweh, She lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then Yahweh opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then Yahweh opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me, and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you, and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of Yahweh, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, If it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of Yahweh said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to kiriath Huzoth, And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam, and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth-Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Yahweh put a word in Balaam's mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside the burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom Yahweh has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him, behold a people dwelling alone, and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what Yahweh puts in my mouth? And Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place, from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them, and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stand here, beside your burnt offering, while I meet Yahweh over there. And Yahweh met Balaam, and put a word in his mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, what has Yahweh spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Yahweh their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt, and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, and do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell you all that Yahweh says? That I must do. And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahweh to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that Yahweh has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces, and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but Yahweh has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh to do either good or bad of my own will. What Yahweh speaks, that will I speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, The oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now, I behold him, but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, it shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Sar also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Ashur takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Kittim, and shall afflict Ashur and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 638 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 14th, 2023. And that was a reading of actually a few chapters of Numbers because they go together. And it doesn't seem good to me to break them up. And if it seemed a little longer in this passage this selection of scripture a little longer in the reading, well, that's okay. That's all right. And actually, I want to explain why I insist. I insist, even at the risk of potentially losing listeners. And I realize that that's a risk. It's not lost on me. I've gotten input over the years that I've been podcasting that this is a risk I run, doing the long-form thing. I'm doing something that... The people I ask for advice are telling me, oh, nobody's doing that, and maybe you shouldn't either. Maybe maybe there's a reason. Not everybody is doing even the long-form podcast. Lots of people do short podcasts, but more to the point, the ones who do long-form podcasts typically have a lot more production value put into it, which I would say is a factor of having a lot more investment, Right. But they're doing video podcast, for instance, and you're not doing video podcast, you're just doing audio. Or they're doing interviews, or they're like Joe Rogan, and they sit down for the entire time. It's a long-form podcast, but it's not just one person talking and monologuing like with yours. And I say, but my doing the long-form thing here, for one, is what I believe the Lord wants me to be doing, however so-called successful it is. The story of Balaam is instructive that we wouldn't be trying to get a house full of treasure in exchange for saying the opposite of what God wants us to be saying or saying something other than what God wants us to be saying. You know, what's curious about Balaam's story is that he says repeatedly, again and again and again, either I can't go with you because you want me to do something that God Doesn't want me to do. You want me to say something that God doesn't want me to say. Or when he does go, Balaam says, I can only bless who Yahweh blesses. I can only curse who Yahweh curses. I cannot curse those Yahweh has blessed, and I cannot bless those who Yahweh has cursed. He says this repeatedly. And Balak gets very angry, and he's very persistent. He's a nag, but he's also trying to mix it up, right? He sends a certain set of messengers at first, and they don't do the trick. And so what does he do? He sends another set. He sends a more reputable, more prestigious set of messengers. Maybe these guys will be able to convince Balaam. Balak sends more prestigious messengers, and maybe he thinks Balaam is going to be in awe of these men, and how noble they are, and how very fine, how well-dressed, or rich, or powerful, or dynamic, or convincing, any way you slice it. Then, when Balaam arrives, finally, after the business with the donkey and the angel of Yahweh, which is very clearly, to my way of reading it, Jesus Christ pre-incarnate in the Old Testament, showing up with a sword in his hand, how's that for a modification of your idea of Jesus? If you think Jesus is only in the New Testament, well, take care, because Jesus is co-eternal. The Son is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, consubstantial, co-eternal, but Balaam finally does arrive, and Balak keeps changing where they're going to do this cursing business from. And you can tell also that Balak is accustomed to dealing with gods who can be flattered or manipulated or nagged into giving him what he wants. Or Balak is used to dealing with priests and prophets of these false gods who are able to be bought. And Balaam, to this point, right right up until we get to chapter 25, which is the next, right up until there from Numbers 22, Balaam is looking like he can't be bought. He can't be bullied. He can't be intimidated. God has told him repeatedly, say only what I tell you to say and no more. And so Balaam pronounces blessings, actually. He would keep quiet, but because Balak keeps pressing, Balaam has to say something. And what does he say when he opens his mouth? He blesses Israel. As we'll find out very shortly, he doesn't only bless, he also gives some counsel, essentially, as to how to set the people of God at enmity with Yahweh, their God, how to put them into a situation where God will not bless them because they're being disobedient. We'll see that in the next bit of reading. But for now, just consider that Balak is in something of an existential crisis mode. He admits he can't win man to man against this people. He needs supernatural help. It's also a very curious thing. It's a very curious thing to me. It's something of a head-scratcher. Who is this Balaam guy that he's having these conversations with Yahweh? He knows Yahweh, which is to say you have Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, interacting with other peoples besides just the ones that we read about in the text. That's very curious, and it's very thought-provoking and it's very mysterious. Where does this Balaam come from, and how does he have this interaction with the Lord Almighty, this seeming familiarity? Also, too, it's curious with the donkey. I mean, the donkey sees the angel. Balaam doesn't. The donkey's trying to turn aside. Balaam gets furious because he's being humiliated as he sees it, which is to say he is taking himself rather too seriously. He's got some selfish ambition, vain conceit creeping in. And that's part of the spirit in which he is going to Balak. And it's a curious thing too, that God tells Balaam, go with the men at a certain point, go with them, but only say what I tell you to say. And yet there's something going on In the heart of Balaam, he's already scheming, it would seem, and thinking about, is there a way he can get out of his constraints? Is there a way that Balaam can give Balak what he wants and get what Balaam wants without incurring the wrath of God? And as he is thinking along those lines, Jesus in the Old Testament, the angel of Yahweh, God the Son it would seem, is angry enough with him that he stands in the way and is going to kill him, and Balaam doesn't see him. That's very, very curious as part of the larger narrative here. What is it that Balaam keeps saying when he blesses, when he opens his mouth, when he takes up his discourse, as it says, he says, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. And this here would seem to me to be some kind of a reference to the third eye, which is a bit creepy, admittedly, but then the whole situation is creepy. Balak is calling on a man who is regarded as having insight into the unseen realm, insight and some kind of power, spiritually, more than other men, by virtue of His interaction with the spiritual realm, his knowledge of the spiritual realm. This is weird and uncomfortable and mysterious, much the same as the Magi knowing that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem because they see it in the stars. This is strange, very like that, because you get the idea just briefly in passing that there's a lot more going on in the world than just this people, Israel. What's curious too is the kind of oracle that Balaam is delivering admits this. Israel does not count itself among the nations. They don't think of themselves as a nation. And yet the blessing on them, God's promise, God's plan, God's purpose is to make them first among the nations, interestingly. And yet, and yet... Here they are going up against, or coming into the territory of, or having just passed through the kingdoms of, other peoples we are much less familiar with, who were much greater and much more important back then. We're more familiar with the name Israel because Israel is still a country. How many of these other nations and peoples are still countries? And what does God say? I'm going to destroy them, utterly this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. And now we have people who don't really believe that the Bible is true unless they can go out and dig in the dirt and find a little piece of writing that makes reference in another country. If they find a piece of writing in Egypt that makes reference to a king of Israel, then they say, oh, well, okay, apparently he did exist. And it doesn't matter how many of these kinds of artifacts they find The secular archaeologists will keep on not believing right up until the second coming, you can be sure. And yet when we consider that God has said he's going to destroy these peoples and these nations and you consider the secular explanation, well, this is written much later, clearly. I mean, it is clearly not prophetic. This is clearly not something that is written before the destruction of those nations. Oh, surely not. This surely didn't actually happen. This is written down as a way of explaining where those nations went, and it's uh, it's made up, like they know, right? Like they know. You're projecting. Right? You're assuming that peoples in the past, the authors of the biblical canon, are like you. That's what you do. You rewrite things to fit your narrative, and in some sense, you're revealing how you operate, how you approach history to spin it in a way that flatters our zeitgeist and the people who will give money to you, right? And this is how a lot of people are, a lot of consultants, a lot of influencers They'll just say whatever someone will pay them enough money to say. Whoever is paying the most, whoever's paying the best gets to write the tune and they'll sing it. Except in this case, in this instance, you have this curious figure, Balaam, who fears God enough to at least say, I can't say any more than what Yahweh is going to let me say. I can't say any more than what he tells me to say, which is more than can be credited to most of the hirelings, most of the flatterers, most of... The folks whose curses are solicited, whose blessings are solicited in exchange for money. There's more, there's more (laughs) integrity in Balaam, interestingly enough, to this point than is the case in most of the guns for hire rhetorically in our day. Because how many of them would say, even the first time, even the second time, I can't say that can't say what you're asking me to say. That wouldn't please God. In fact, I can't even go with you. The first time he's asked, I can't even go with you. No, there's no point. And he was more correct then. But what's part of his mistake is he keeps going back to God himself and seeking a different answer. And he's getting the same answer. And he's getting even stronger blessings each successful, each successive time that he goes back to God asking for what to say. As if God is going to change his mind, as if maybe this time God will prefer my getting all this wealth and honor to God getting the honor and the glory and fulfilling his promises and his purposes. That's where the problem starts for Balaam. And again, as I said, we will get into what that looks like and what happens, what the final state of Balaam is. It's very sobering. But for the purposes of this podcast episode, at least, let's just suffice to say, you have in Balaam a cautionary tale for somebody who would have a knowledge of God, have something of a relationship with God, as in there's conversation back and forth. This is a cautionary tale to not go prostituting yourself, if God has given you the word, say it, speak it, speak only that. Don't deviate to the right or to the left, either for threats or for bribes. Don't do it or you'll end up like Balaam. Speaking of selling out and making people unhappy, making everyone unhappy, (laughs) Chris Enlow reports over at TheBlaze.com. Target stores in five states received bomb threats, but media bury the most important detail, betrayed the LGBTQ plus community. What I want to draw your attention to here, you may already know about, you may have already heard about this, but in the context of the Balaam business, it might look a little different. It might sound a little bit different. If we are thinking of, The situation in the U.S. as being a clash of cultures. On the one hand, you have the historically predominantly Christian culture that conservatives want to maintain or go back to. We want to restore. We want to refurbish. We want to reinstate. And on the other hand, you have the radical left, which loves globalism and abortion and transgenderism and homosexuality and bisexuality and uh, essentially communism. In the case of Target for Pride Month, the store, the corporation was literally partnering with a transgender activist, a woman who has undergone surgery and hormone therapy and makes T-shirts and other merchandise that says, Satan respects pronouns. And this all came out along with pictures and accounts of displays at the front of Target stores with products directed at children Books and toys and clothes explicitly promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism for children. And the backlash has been extraordinary. Target has lost a lot of money. Their stock price is doing very poorly. A whole lot of conservative parents in particular, conservative Americans in particular, have decided, you know what, that's it. I don't want to shop at Target if that's how Target's going to be. And so what was the response from Target but to take the displays to have an emergency company-wide session to try and do damage control. They took the displays at the front of the store and they put them at the back of the store. And clearly, clearly they hoped That thereby, they could keep the LGBTQ plus people happy. That hey, it's in the store. See, we're still doing it. We're gonna pull some of these things out, but we're still proud of our gay friends, our bisexual friends, our transgendered friends. But we just don't want it at the front of the store because it's hurting us financially. It's hurting our image. We're being boycotted. Well, the LGBTQ plus groups are incensed because that's the wrong direction. They want the whole store to be a celebration of their rebellion against God, their sin, their folly, their evil lifestyle. They're not repentant. They're proud of their sin. They flaunt their sin. They revel in the daytime. They've forgotten how to blush. They're unreasonable. They are given over to a reprobate mind, and they've exchanged natural passions and desires for unnatural passions and desires. And in response to Target changing where they put these pride displays, bomb threats. Because Target has turned its back on the LGBTQ plus community. You're not doing what we want you to do. You're not saying what we want you to say. And the media doesn't want to highlight this fact because then the media would be next. This is also the media's agenda. And so the media doesn't want to highlight this. They might talk about Target getting bomb threats, but they'll leave it open-ended for the low information people to come to their own conclusions. They won't directly state that it's the conservatives making the bomb threats. They'll just leave it to your imagination. And if you come to that conclusion, well, you know, it's not technically a lie. You're mistaken, of course, of course. But then the media can say, oh, we didn't lie. No, it's a lie by omission. You know what you're doing. You're being dishonest and deceitful. Uh, You're being like Balaam ends up being before the end of his story in the book of Numbers. You're being deceptive. You're trying to pit this people against their God and our God against this people. Shame on that. I mean, for one thing, This should be a caution to any other corporations out there who have tried to please and court the woke, the left, the gay lobby, the transgender movement. This should be a caution because once you start down that road, it's almost like joining a gang. You join a gang. And you're only thinking of the upsides and the positives and the benefits. If at some point it gets a little too dark, a little too intense, and you want to leave the gang, what typically happens with gangs? Not just are you dead to them, but they might make you dead. They might send somebody to take you out. Well, so also with these leftist activist groups and corporations. These activist groups have been successfully blackmailing and extorting corporate America and using corporate America to promote their agenda. When they can't use the government, well, they'll get at corporations and then they'll use the corporations to force employees. If you're employed by these corporations, that's how they get you getting into HR departments and management schools so that your managers working for a so-called private company, when we supposedly believe in free market principles, your managers will make sure that you only say the things that are favorable to the leftist agenda. You don't criticize it. You don't work contrary to it. You definitely don't oppose it or else it might cost you your job. It'll at least jeopardize you moving up in the company, you being successful there. But what happens when the woke corporations decide, Ooh, wait a second. The conservatives are now boycotting us here. It was only working in one direction for 10, 15, 20 years. The left would boycott us and threaten us. And so we gave the left what they wanted. Now the conservatives are doing it. Maybe we should walk this back. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. That's like signaling that you want to leave. A gang. You're getting cold feet when they tell you what your next mission is. You're going to have to pick a side, Target. Corporate America, you're going to have to pick a side and commit to it. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I don't mean conservatives versus leftists. I mean God versus the old pagan gods of antiquity. I mean God or the devil. You need to decide who you are going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. On a similar note, although I may need to unpack this a little bit for that to become clear, how so, Anthony Cash, great name to write this story, by the way, Anthony Cash over at The Daily Wire published a piece on June 5th. It's only merchandise, Lululemon, CEO, defends firing of employees who confronted thieves. What's curious about this is that Calvin McDonald, head of Lululemon, CEO of Lululemon, is hiding behind the company's zero-tolerance policy on engaging thieves and shoplifters. That's the excuse for having fired two employees who called the police and filmed three masked men when they attempted to rob the Georgia store that these employees worked at. Lululemon fired these employees because they have a zero tolerance policy. It's only merchandise, he says. It's only merchandise. No, 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 no. It's only you being terrified of what the gang is going to do to you and your corporation if you get cold feet and you start to back out of the woke ESG leftist corporatism. That's what this is really about. It's not about you caring more about the safety of your employees or enforcing company policy. That's not what this is about. This is about you having corporate policy that is supposed to flatter and advance the goals of the radical left. And so if the radical left has decided in states like California, not just California, but let's just take California for instance, if the radical left has decided that George Soros funded district attorneys in major cities and, when possible, in state government, various legislators, governors, etc. cetera. When the radical left decides that part of how you defeat conservative Americans is by permitting and promoting crime and criminality in major American cities— destabilizing the US, and then they turn to the corporate world and they say, we want you also to do your part, do your part to promote wokeness, socialism, ultimately. Lululemon is more concerned about woke investment being withdrawn from Lululemon. This CEO is more concerned about the kind of treatment the target is getting with bomb threats He's more concerned about the radical left than he is about these employees or what the general effect is on the surrounding neighborhood if you normalize and reward and don't punish and don't call for accountability for thieves robbing your stores. That's what this is really about. And actually, again, going back to the whole Balaam thing, Not to give too much away, but the very next part of the story is that Balaam gives advice to Balak. He can't curse Israel, but he can give some advice to Balak, Balaam can, as to how to destabilize Israel's relationship with God so that Israel can be defeated. That's the same thing that the woke ESG initiative folks, the George Soros DAs, the radical left in all of its iterations in the U.S. is trying to do, destabilize the U.S., particularly destabilize our relationship with God so that conservative Americans can be defeated, so that America writ large can be defeated and overthrown and dismantled and vanquished. That is what's at stake if Lululaman rewards rather than firing employees who confront shoplifters and masked thieves breaking into the store. They should be rewarding those employees, not firing them. That's what they should be doing. But this is something of a clue as to how there is a Balak kind of figure, and there are interests at work behind the scenes very similar to Balaks in the context of Numbers 22 through 24. By contrast, I want you to hear cut one here, our first audio clip for this episode, where Jordan Peterson is talking about transgender activism and his stance, why this matters to him. Thank you to Ian Miles Chung for tweeting this out. And for NTB staff to embed this tweet, allows me to see it, allows you to hear it perhaps. But without further ado, here's Cut One. Take a listen
1: that was your problem you know people ask me well why does this trans thing bother you why do you care like you know what's it up what's up with you why can't you just leave these poor people alone and i mean my answer to that is because they're cutting the musculature off the forearms of children to build penises that don't work that's one of the reasons that i can't leave it alone there's many others which we can get to
0: okay it really is that simple humanly speaking Real children are being harmed as they're being groomed for sexual deviance to please and satisfy and excite and gratify perverts, sexual deviants who are adults, radical left politicians, and activists. Real children are being harmed on a massive scale, real children are being caused to disbelieve and be rebellious against their parents and against the Most High God as a way of trying to destabilize this country so that the radical left can take power. So they can either remake the United States of America, according to their global vision, their Marxist vision, or they can destroy it and get it out of the way and then fly off to some other country where they'll set up shop. Unmolested. Undisturbed. Unopposed. But Jordan Peterson, he's hinting at something here which... A lot of us need to remember. We need to realize it on the front end, but we also need to remember it and keep it in mind. The insinuation is that conservatives are the ones picking a fight. We're the ones making an issue. We're the ones making trouble. But in actual fact, let's review the tape. Let's take another look at the chronology and make sure it's not getting out of whack here. The radical left has started this fight. They've picked this fight. They've infiltrated these institutions. They've taken them over. They're using them to try and destabilize families. They're using them to destabilize individuals. Even somebody's concept of themselves, if destabilizing that will help the radical left to get what they want, even a child being destabilized If that will help the radical left get what they want socially and politically and spiritually, they're willing to do it on a massive scale. For the same reasons that Stalin and Hitler and Mao were willing to destroy tens of millions of people in the 20th century to promote their political vision, the radical left in this country is willing to abort tens of millions of babies. And mutilate the bodies of tens of millions of children if it helps them to accomplish their political agenda. And conservatives are saying no. And then what does the dishonest media do? What do corrupt politicians do? What do greedy, selfish, lying corporations do? They say, oh, you conservatives You conservatives, you're the trouble. If there's trouble here, you brought it with you. And it's Grima Wormtongue whispering sweet nothings in the ear of King Theoden in The Lord of the Rings. There's a whole lot of people who are under a spell. And they're being taught to regard as enemy the very people who have showed up to help protect and to serve. So the kind of question that Jordan Peterson would get, why does it bother you so much? Why do you care so much? Is the wrong question. Why do these activists care so much? Why do they want to promote this stuff so much that they would be willing to murder unborn children and mutilate born children? So kudos to Jordan Peterson for being willing to speak up and take great risk. That's the whole reason we know his name in the first place is because he was willing to speak up and speak out and refuse to be bullied into preferred pronouns and risk his integrity. He correctly identified the demand for using preferred pronouns years ago, he correctly identified that as totalitarian. If you think children are being groomed in the schools to be homosexuals and transgendered, which they are, realize that all of us, children and adults alike, are being groomed to embrace totalitarianism. And that's why this is so important, is that regarding government as God has never, ever, ever, ever worked out well. What's ironic is the radical left, the secularists, the classical liberals, in many cases even libertarians and establishment conservatives, as they think of themselves, will say any hint of Christian faith informing our politics, who we vote for, what policies we promote and support any hint of Christian faith informing that is a slippery slope to theocracy. You know what? We're already living in something worse than a theocracy. You know what's worse than a theocracy is when the government is God and unelected bureaucrats can destroy your life without any accountability to speak of. Without you even knowing it, you could be on a terrorist watch list because you objected to your child being taught gender theory and critical race theory. You objected to your child's teachers promoting socialism and the abolition of free market capitalism. You objected to the taking down of statues, of our nation's founding fathers. You could be audited. You could be surveilled because you're regarded as a domestic extremist. But it's a lie. It's a lie that government can be God or play God without consequence or with only positive consequences we just need more government control. We need more centralized decision-making. That's that's why it hasn't worked out so far. We just need to try it again and harder, once more with feeling this time. No, no. We're all being groomed to regard government as God. And part of the test for parents across this country is, are you willing to offer up your children as human sacrifices if that's what it takes for you to have prosperity. And unfortunately, disturbingly, many parents are happy to make that trade because they love themselves and they love this present world. And you know what? Even if it meant loving darkness itself, if that's what it would take to get rich and famous, and powerful, or stay that way, so be it. As far as they're concerned, and that's why I say, Balaam is arguably in a better spot in the context of Numbers 22 through 24. Because at least he starts out saying, and he says it several times, even under tremendous pressure, tremendous reward, and a promise of a bribe offered, and a veiled threat. When a king in whose presence you are claps his hands, strikes his hands together, he's so angry, a thinly veiled threat is being leveled. You're going to do this thing, or maybe something bad will happen to you. Maybe something bad will be done to you by my soldiers surrounding you right now. But of course he doesn't make the threat outright, He just keeps on trying to bribe Balaam and many of these parents who are giving their kids over to being destroyed, mind, body, and soul. Many of these parents, they don't even object once, much less as many times as Balaam did. They give in like Balaam ultimately did. They compromise like Balaam ultimately did, but without nearly so much fuss and resistance another institution though which is giving into this woke business and helping to promote it now whether because they were bribed or because they were bullied it doesn't matter much johns hopkins university says a woman is a non-man in new glossary according to reporting by may reed ellordi the prestigious baltimore research university's lgbtq glossary defined a lesbian as, quote, a non-man attracted to non-men, end quote. Quote, while past definitions refer to lesbian as a woman who is emotionally, romantically, and or sexually attracted to other women, this updated definition includes non-binary people who may also identify with the label, end quote. The definition adds, the entire glossary has, Since been taken down, pending review, conservative commentators and gender ideology critics were quick to point out the absurdity in this definition from one of the country's most distinguished universities. Quote, lesbians are now officially squirrels. End quote. Ben Shapiro tweeted, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling tweeted out, man, no definition needed. Non-man, formerly known as woman, a being definable only by reference to the male an absence, a vacuum where there's no manness. Very curious and surprising and shocking, I suppose, if you haven't been paying attention and you will continue to be confused and surprised and shocked if you don't get this very simple, basic truth that all of these isms, all of these phobias, which we have been hearing so much about in the past. 15 to 20 years especially, but longer, more besides. All of them have one common denominator. All of them are useful for bullying and bribing people to enlist with the left. That's the common denominator. The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray would be worth your time, worth reading, where he talks about how curious it is that the Muslim rights the LGBTQ rights, the women's rights, the people of colors, movements, all of them will turn their back on a member of their own group in a heartbeat if a member of that group says something contrary to or critical of the progressive agenda. So the feminist groups, the feminist activists, women's rights groups, They're all about the women until a woman starts running as a Republican or decides she wants to be a stay-at-home mom. She wants to get married, have a mess of kids, homeschool them, stay at home, raise them. All of a sudden, she's not really a woman. She's a traitor to women. Why? Because women are seen as a means to the end of promoting the leftist cause to leftists. A person of color is all the people of color's Groups see or care about right up until the moment a person of color runs as a Republican or starts talking in a conservative way or starts questioning and challenging the radical left or progressivism. And then all of a sudden, they're not really black. They're a traitor to their race. They're a turncoat. They're an Uncle Tom. They're an Uncle Ruckus. The same goes for these major academic institutions. These academic institutions are captive institutions, captive to the left. Now, they may pull down a new glossary pending review, but here's the question. If they're willing to put that out there in the first place, even if they don't put it back up, shouldn't we be taking a long, hard look at who's on staff, who's donating, where the money's coming from? who's teaching, who's tenured. Shouldn't we be taking a long, hard look at who's promoting cultural Marxism and the radical left agenda at these universities at Johns Hopkins? Shouldn't we be taking a long, hard look at that and getting these people out, removing them from positions of teaching authority? I would say yes. Target pulls their pride displays from the front of the store and they put them at the back of the store. Should you go and shop at Target now? The pride display is still there. They're still selling a lot of these products. Their position as a company hasn't changed. And apart from a major revival, a major repentance, a major coming to Jesus moment, what's changed? You know, it's like if the Lululemon store was being robbed in Georgia by three masked men and the store employees confronted them, and rather than leaving the store, these robbers just went around the corner and started stealing out of sight of the employees. What would you say? You'd say, they haven't left the store. They're still here. They're still doing what they came to do. Just because they walked around the corner, that doesn't mean that it's all fine now. If a glossary with these terms is showing up in Johns Hopkins University, if the Target stores are putting the pride displays at the back of the store instead of at the front of the store, there is a much deeper problem that we still need to address. And we shouldn't just suppose, oh, it's fine now. It's fine now. No, it's not. It's not. There needs to be a much more thorough house cleaning or else these institutions are toast. This will rot them from the inside out. And it's in the process of doing so. This is only shocking for people who have been in denial, they've been living in denial about the state of higher education in this country and how much the left has taken over and how serious the left is about a complete transformation or else destruction of the United States. They want global communism, period. All of these other things are just a means to that end. They want global communism. That's why they're promoting climate change. That's why they're promoting lesbianism and homosexuality among men and bisexuality and transgenderism. And increasingly, what has been going on in academia where they've been debating and normalizing pedophilia, increasingly we're seeing that come out into the broader culture as well. And again, all of it goes back to communism but even before that, it goes back to Satanism and goes back to neopaganism and the worshiping of false gods, pagan gods, capricious and cruel and arbitrary and finite gods who one day might accept your sacrifice of your daughter and bless your voyage to conquer the enemy city. And then the next day, they might decide you're getting a little too full of yourself and they strike you with lightning and that's it. That's the end of you. In other news, Chris Enloe over at The Blaze wrote a piece, trans activist who flashed fake breasts on White House lawn is banned over disrespectful behavior. June 13th, 2023, I wish they had half as much respect for God as they do for the White House. Lawn, for that matter, it's not even the White House itself, except that they're in proximity to the White House as if the White House is holy, in and of itself, but even them having a pride event and flying the gay pride flag, they desecrated it. Joe Biden's administration, Joe Biden's handlers desecrated the White House. It's supposed to be the chief executive's residence and place of business, and they are flying a giant gay pride flag center right between two giant American flags. They are doing what I talked about in a recent episode where I said that these gay pride flags are being flown as the same kind of a gesture that has, since the beginning of history, marked the taking of a fortress or a city or a citadel or a position by a hostile force. Iwo Jima in World War II, when... Our American forces took the island. What did they do? They raised an American flag from the tallest mountain as a way of symbolically signaling to both the Japanese who were still fighting, hey, we've taken this position. We're going to take the entire island. You might as well surrender, which of course was not in the cultural mindset of the Japanese to do. That would go contrary everything they were raised in, everything they were raised to believe about themselves as Japanese, about honor, about their family, about their emperor. But to a Western mind, the raising of that flag would also mean, hey guys, we're doing it. We're winning. Keep fighting. We've got this. The troops on the beach, the vehicles being brought to shore from the ships parked right off coast, the sailors In those ships, bombarding enemy positions, could see that flag and recognize this was victory. It's an iconic image that's been made into statues and stamps and murals. The photograph has been very powerful symbolically about American victory over Imperial Japan. The gay pride flag being raised at the White House is also a symbolic gesture on the part of trans activists, gay activists. Hey, look, we did it. We did it, Joe. We win. But then you get this man who has undergone surgical alterations to have fake breasts implanted on his chest. He dresses up in women's clothes. He grows his hair out long. He wears makeup. He wears jewelry. That would be associated with a traditional female expression in our culture. He had just taken a picture with Joe and Jill Biden on the White House lawn. And then what does he do? What's his next thing to do? Standing alongside a woman who has undergone surgical alteration as well, to look like a man, to have her breasts removed, standing alongside a woman who has undergone hormone therapy, so that she grows facial hair and looks like a man. What did both of these transgendered persons do on the White House lawn? They took their tops off. The man, who goes by the name Rose Montoya, took his top off to expose his fake breasts with the White House in the background. The woman, who has undergone various medical procedures to look like a man, took her top off, to show her scars from having her breasts surgically removed. And now this Rose Montoya is banned from returning to the White House over supposed disrespectful behavior. What was disrespectful behavior was having this event at the White House in the first place, promoting the policies, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, to normalize and even to prefer those who are homosexuals, and transgendered as a way of trying to achieve global dominance. That's what was disrespectful behavior. But it's not a problem, first and foremost, that this is disrespectful to the United States of America or to the American flag or to the White House. First and foremost, this is disrespectful towards God who made us male and female from the beginning. This is disrespectful towards God and God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A nation and a people reaps what they sow. I'm going to play another cut for you here, another clip. This will be cut two from a post at Not To Be June 6th by Harris Rigby titled, This Would Have Once Been A Comedy Skit. Here it is, cut two from a tweet by Peter Whittle embedded in the post. Take a listen. So proud of uh, Sister Roma and her work uh, in the community, and I'm proud of California for standing strong uh, in, uh, to support
2: uh, LGBTQ people as our community is under assault uh, in the rest of the country.
1: Sister Roma went on to say it's an incredible honor to have been nominated. She says being recognized not only means a lot to her, but the LGBTQ community at large.
0: So there's some reporting from San Francisco, California. Sister Roma, so-called, is a member of the anti-Catholic Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. San Francisco Democrat Scott Weiner, ironic name, is honoring Sister Roma, so-called. But of course, Sister Roma is not a sister and not a her, not a she. This is a man dressed up like a clown As a living sacrifice, offering himself up as a living sacrifice to the old pagan gods. This is not a new thing. This is a very old pagan thing being brought back, seeing a resurgence in San Francisco and then spreading throughout the country and now even hoisting a flag of victory over the White House here in the United States of America. This is not a new thing, this is a very old thing, but this is the next logical progression of having normalized homosexuality. Normalizing homosexuality was the next logical progression after normalizing feminism. To say gender is a social construct, it's totally arbitrary, whether you're a man or a woman, doesn't really matter. You're interchangeable in the home, in your church, in a place of business, in broader society, in our government. There's no difference. There's no distinction whatsoever. It's a hop, skip, and a jump from that to men can have romantic relationships with men. Women can have romantic relationships with women. It's a hop, skip, and a jump from that to men can be women. Women can be men. It's a hop, skip, and a jump from that to there is no such thing as men or women. Just people. Just people, generally once you've abolished that distinction, the next distinction that is easy to break down is that of child or adult. If it's all arbitrary, then you say, well, what is the difference between two consenting adults and a consenting adult and a consenting minor? And once you've abolished that distinction, then the next one you move on to is what's the difference between a consenting adult and child and an adult who just wants to do this thing and the child doesn't know what they want. This is for their good. This is for the best. Or if it's not, well, then it's for the greater good. It's for the betterment of humanity. It's for the best globally. And once you've normalized surgical procedures and hormone therapy for minors, it's a very short trip to actually offering up children as part of pagan rituals in worship to false gods. If you can talk them into it, And with suicide rates being what they are in the public schools among the youth, maybe that's part of what we're seeing, actually, is these demonic forces having been unleashed in the public schools, the Christian testimony having been threatened into silence, having been bribed into pronouncing a curse on the church in America, a curse on God's people in this country, the demons are let loose and are wreaking havoc on our children, on our men, on our women. The pride flag going up in the pictures from the pride event at the White House. That's not just a victory for the transgender activists and the homosexuals. That's a victory for these very old, very ancient gods of the nations, which were driven out by God. Through Israel, as God gave those nations into the hand of Israel, so also those demons would like to give America into the hands of the Marxists, very clearly. And so, yes, you heard that right. You have a Democrat in San Francisco praising and honoring a transvestite clown who mocks Roman Catholics. That is what he is known for. But he's not mocking. Roman Catholics, first and foremost. He's mocking Roman Catholics as a means to the end of mocking the Most High God, because this is part of a larger, broader rebellion. This is part of a long standing spiritual war between the angels who rebelled against the Most High God and were cast out of heaven, and on the other hand, Michael, the archangel, and the angels who remained faithful and obedient and kept on serving the Most High God. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more so matters pertaining to this life? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, Paul writes? These kinds of things we have to come to a judgment about because we are calling for repentance, because we are pleading with those who are being led away to the slaughter. For our next story, let's talk about Andrew Chapados and his reporting. June 13th, over at The Blaze, they are also talking about San Francisco, except in this case, the headline is Secret San Francisco Society, Bohemian Grove Sued by Former Valets for Unlawful Labor Practices. Lawsuit reveals over 100 camps that operate under peculiar rules. Now, I bring this to your attention in relation to the Democrat- Wiener honoring the drag queen in San Francisco. I bring this up because I think we may not know all of what is in the mix and all of what the real story is with this bohemian club, bohemian grove in San Francisco, but we know that it's a thing. We know that it's a thing that exists and that it's weird. We know that much. We also happen to know that the Bohemian Club was founded by a group of journalists in 1872. According to Andrew Chapados' reporting, this group routinely gathers in secret in the forest to allegedly take part in rituals that involve human effigies and the burning of a giant sacrificial owl, according to the outlet. Encyclopedia Britannica describes it as, quote, an elite invitation-only social club founded by a group of male artists, writers, actors, lawyers, and journalists, all of means and interested in arts and culture. Now you might say, well, what's the big deal, right? They're interested in arts and culture. That's harmless. What's the big deal? As we will get into in our next podcast episode, where we talk about what Balaam did after he said, I can only bless who God blesses. I can only curse who God curses. I can't bless who God curses. I can't curse who God blesses. As we will find out very soon on this podcast, continuing to read through numbers, arts and culture are very, very important as a means to either securing the blessings of heaven or soliciting punishment and the wrath of God and God withdrawing his protection and his favor. But continuing on with the reporting from Andrew Chapatos. It was also recently reported that Justice Clarence Thomas had visited the camp while controversial broadcaster Alex Jones once produced a documentary about the secret location after allegedly infiltrating it. Three former valets, Anthony Gregg, Sean Granger, and Walid Saad, brought a lawsuit on June 6, 2023, that was investigated by SF Gate. The legal complaint alleges unlawful practices by the Bohemian Club, which include non stop workdays, limited phone calls, and few bathroom or lunch breaks, a failure to meet minimum wage and overtime pay standards was also alleged. I guess that's one of the benefits of it being a secret club, a secret society is you get people to not talk about it. And there's also no accountability that way. (laughs) If people can't talk about it, then you can just do whatever. The complaint revealed that the camp allegedly hosts three events per year, the spring jinx, the spring picnic, and the summer encampment The documents also reportedly showed that the club is broken up into 100 camps, over 100 camps, some of which were named in the complaint. The Camels Camps, the Last Chance Camps, and the Monastery Camp were all listed. Quote, Monastery Camp is one of the most prestigious and well-known camps at Bohemian Grove. Attendees include Bohemian Club members that are executives of Fortune 500 companies and prominent government officials. End quote. According to the complaint, One or more captains at each camp allegedly broke labor laws by directing valets to falsify payroll records and to work off the clock. Four valets were also allegedly forced to work nonstop for approximately 18 hours, providing a two-course lunch and dinner to 90 guests during the spring jinx Burgundy lunch. Quote, employees were intimidated or coerced into waiving meal periods, end quote, and Documents also claimed, in addition, phone calls were only permitted before 9 a.m. and after 9 p.m. and could last no more than 30 minutes. In 2016, the Bohemian Club faced litigation and eventually agreed to pay employees $7 million in a settlement that stemmed from a class action lawsuit. The lawsuit claimed more than 600 employees were victims of wage theft from 2011 to 2014. And if you follow the link, which I will put in the podcast, description for this episode. If you follow the link, you'll see that there are a couple of clips, one from Joe Rogan talking about the Bohemian Grove, and also another one from the History Channel. Again, like I say, it's not entirely clear what's going on there, but the rumors are that they have a giant owl statue, and that this owl statue with an altar in front of it is actually representative of the Canaanite deity, Moloch. If true, we can say there are artists, there are journalists, there are heads of corporations, there are government officials who are going to this secret society, which whether for fun or not, is engaging in something like a pagan ritual, an old pagan ritual devoted to the god Moloch. Moloch was famous for having children sacrificed to him in return for prosperity. Moloch is also talked about on this podcast, my podcast. If you want to go back and check it out, episode 537, which I published January 13th, that one's titled Moloch Deathworks, Negative World and the Limitations of Decentralized Generative AI. I play some clips from a discussion about cryptocurrency that looped in this Moloch principle, this idea that people can be very selfish and they can pursue what they think is in their self-interest while all the same, actually destroying themselves, undermining themselves because they're so greedy. They're so greedy for prosperity. They're willing to even sacrifice their future in the interest of attaining something now. We can say that's a psychological principle, but I would say insofar as psychology at root is the study of the human soul, there was a deity in Canaan named Moloch who was worshipped in part where parents sacrificed their children to him. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see God expressly forbidding Israel to worship Yahweh, their God, as the peoples he's driving out before them to give them the promised land, worshipped Moloch, offering their children on the fire as human sacrifices to Moloch. This is why God is driving these peoples out and giving Israel the promised land. If we have very wealthy, very powerful, very influential Americans and other nationalities are probably in the mix as well. These are probably mostly Global Citizens who are part of the Bohemian Club, if we have them gathering throughout the year in San Francisco to go through pagan rituals, even just for the fun of it, maybe at a certain point we put two and two together and we say, this could be ushering in and channeling power of a demonic nature, of a spiritual nature from ancient pagan deities. And that would actually fit for the Christian, lest you think I'm being weird here, that would actually fit what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If that is where our struggle and where our wrestle is, how could we as Christians say, none of that exists? I don't think we can. I don't think we can. Lest we forget that race is also a primary means for the left to push for their political agenda more broadly, to accuse conservatives who stand in their way, lest we forget that there are other mechanisms that the radical left uses besides gender and sexuality. I know it's pride month, but I'm going to play another clip for you. This one tweeted out by Clay Travis, June 5th posted to not the Bee by Harris Rigby. This is Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, who is a candidate for president of the United States running in the 2024 race. For the Republican nomination, here is Tim Scott on The View. Take a listen to Cut 3. You have indicated that you don't believe in systemic racism. What is your definition of systemic racism?
2: Let me ask, answer the uh Question that you've answered, asked does it ex-
0: or does it even exist yeah. in your mind?
2: Yeah. Let me uh, answer the question this way. One of the things I, I think about, and one of the reasons why I'm on the show is because of the comments that were made, frankly, on this show, that the only way for a young African American kid to be successful in this country is to be the exception and not the rule. That is a dangerous, offensive, disgusting message to send to our young people today that the only way to succeed is by being the exception. I will tell you that if my life is the exception, uh... I can't imagine. But, but, but I can't. But it imagine, is. But it's not actually. Here's. Here's. It's been here's 114 like, years. Yeah. So, so the fact of the matter is, we've had an African American president, African American uh, vice president. We've had two African Americans to be secretaries of the state. Uh, in my home city, uh, the police chief is an African American who's now running for mayor. The head of the highway patrol for South Carolina is African American. Still. In, 19, in 1975, um, there was about 15 percent employment in the African American community for the first time in the history of the country. It's under 5 percent.
0: 40 percent. Homelessness. And fifty percent of fifty percent of the folks, of the folks get, in our community
2: question. I know that I've watched you on the show that you like people to be deferential and respectful. So I'm gonna do the that same is thing. True. So here's what I'm gonna suggest. I'm gonna suggest the fact of the matter is that progress in America is palpable. It can be measured in generations. I look back at the fact that my grandfather, born in nineteen twenty one in Sally, South Carolina, when he was on a on a sidewalk. A white person was coming, he had to step off and not make eye contact. That man believed then, with some doubt now, in the goodness of America because he believed that having faith in God, mm-hmm. faith in himself, and faith in what the future could hold for his kids would unleash opportunities in ways that you, you cannot imagine. Every kid today can look, just change the stations and see how much mm-hmm. progress has been made in this country. ABC, NBC, CBS, ESPN, CNN fox news all have african-american and hispanic hosts so what i'm suggesting is that the yesterday's exception is today's rule and for us to suggest
0: America has met its promise
2: no of course the the concept of america is that we are going to become a more perfect union but in fact the challenges that we face 50 years ago and 60 years ago should not be the same challenges that we face today. And here's the way that you, you measured that. When my mother was born, about 10% of African-Americans got a high school degree, wow. diploma. Today, it's over 90%. When you look at the income, when you look at the income success that That's we've an had... HBCU stat. Well, listen, HBCUs staff is a good okay. one because one of the reasons why I took the funding for HBCUs to the highest level in the history of the country, and then I helped make it permanent, is because I believe that education is the closest thing to magic in America. So I'm about making sure that our kids have as many opportunities to succeed as possible. It's one of the reasons why
1: I why need I an opportunity to well, succeed because I have to go to. Bra- oh, we have more time. To, they're begging, they're begging, they're we we have common. more I'm just, back. I'm just getting started. I know. I don't leave
2: home. All people can see the success that I've
0: had. We'll be right back. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. That was a longer clip than the others I have played on this episode, but I bring it to your attention in part to reframe the way we're thinking about the current situation. They were very quick to go to commercial break and yes, I realize these shows have to go to commercial break, but what he was saying there runs exactly contrary to, directly opposite of the narrative that the radical left is pushing. The The narrative that the radical left is pushing is that America is evil because predominantly straight white Christian Americans are oppressive. We are unjust. We... Have been keeping women and people of color and sexual minorities down since the nation's founding. According to Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States and Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, we should tear the whole system down and let the radical left have its way with it. So here you have Tim Scott saying, well, wait a second, let's look at the stats, let's look at the timeline. Let's look at the fact that I'm even sitting here having this conversation with you. Now, I would push back on a few of the things that are being implied there. There were black Americans who were running for and winning political office immediately after the Civil War in the South. And the Democrats did the same thing then that they try to do now, except they try to do it now primarily through the media and through the education system. They try to keep black Americans from being conservatives and being Republicans. But so long as black Americans vote Democrat and run as Democrats, well, then they're good black Americans. As long as they vote for Democrats, then they're okay. But if they become a conservative, if they become a Republican, the knives are out, except the knives don't look like what the KKK used to do, which was physically violent in most cases. There still are cases, but in most cases, What the equivalent of the Ku Klux Klan does in media and in academia is they say the black conservative is a traitor to their race and they're betraying progress. But again, citing the madness of crowds by Douglas Murray, this is true in Europe, it's true here in the U.S. as well, what the radical left has to do to get so many of us to believe that or at least to be so tired of the upset that we just give them something, right? We give them something of what they're asking for, so they'll just be quiet and go away and leave us alone. What they have to do is they have to convince you that the leading conservative voices, the Republican voices who are people of color or women or what have you are actually just proxies for straight white males in particular, wealthy Christian Protestant, because that's their real enemy. As time goes on, and more and more of the Democrat Party in the U.S. embraces the fullest, truest, purest form of Marxism, instead of being content with gradually progressing towards it, as they see it, because that's the goal, that's what they're progressing towards, they say, we want it now, and we'll destroy anybody who gets in our way. Regardless their gender, regardless their socioeconomic status regardless of their institutional power regardless of any of the distinctions that they say they care so much about because those distinctions are only useful if they help to advance the cause of the communists of the marxists and so the way the way that the ladies on the view will talk about this so often is Nothing has changed. Nothing has gotten any better. Vote Democrat. And what they leave out, what they neglect to mention is the places where things are the worst in this country are run by Democrats. The places where the things are going the worst are places where even the Republicans just give the Democrats what they want because the Democrats have very bad ideas. They have bad ideas because they don't conform to what God says is true and beautiful and good. In fact, They're making war on what God says is true and beautiful and good because that's what they really object to. And for me to say that, they would say, oh, well, that's just you trying to cloak your white supremacy or your misogyny or your homophobia or your transphobia or your Islamophobia or your xenophobia or whatever phobia will stick long enough for us to shut you up. And so Tim Scott comes out there and he's like, hey, wait a second, my grandfather Had it a lot worse than we do as people of color today. He believed in the promise of America. He believed that if you trust in God, if you work hard, if you apply yourself, if you do the right thing, if you're decent to the people around you, if you raise your family in a God fearing way, it will go well for you. And we don't believe that. And why don't we believe that? We don't believe that in so many cases because of shows like The View, because of what corporate America is promoting through their HR trainings, their harassment prevention trainings, their DEI and ESG initiatives. We don't believe that America is a country blessed by God historically, because we were pursuing righteousness generally. We don't believe that. And so we think we are more oppressed than Senator Tim Scott's grandfather. And it's just like the man on the street videos where kids on college campuses are asked the question, if they're a woman of color or a man of color, what privileges does a straight white male have that you don't have? And they can't answer. And then all of a sudden they do the equivalent of, hey, we've got to go to commercial. I just remembered I got to be somewhere. I got to go. I got to not answer that question. But how many of us actually believe this stuff? You know, I was listening to one of the hosts over at the Daily Wire here recently, and I think it was Andrew Clavin. I think it was, who was talking about how Pride Month is a lie. And the reason it's a lie is if you ask any homosexual person or transgendered person if they're proud, they're not actually proud of these things, but what they want is affirmation what the lobby, what the movement, what the political left is trying to accomplish through Pride Month and through these various activist organizations is cultural revolution. That's what Pride Month is about. It's not about treating people with dignity and decency. It's about playing games with language so as to curse God's people and bless the enemies of God's people. It's about sowing discord and division between brothers and countrymen so that very selfish, very greedy, very arrogant, godless pagans can get what they want and serve their false gods. That's what it's really about. That's what Pride Month is really about. That's what the hoisting of these flags is really about. That's what the cuts to commercial break so quickly are about. They could have very easily, by the way, Let Tim Scott finish what it was that he was saying and then gone to commercial break. They could have very easily done that. He's a candidate for president. He's a man of color, an African-American man, a senator, a U.S. senator from South Carolina, no less, running for president. And they are going to cut him off after three minutes. Really? Think about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Those lasted for hours and hours and hours. But the view needs to cut to commercial after three minutes, after Sonny Hostin trying to talk over him, trying to interrupt him, trying to stop him by other means and not succeeding. This is the same game. It just looks a little different in each of its variations based on what special interest group is being put forward as oppressed and who it is that needs to be destroyed by calling them an oppressor or a puppet of the oppressors, but the real enemy is the conservative Christian American. And the scariest thing to the radical left is when somebody who belongs to one of those special subgroups starts saying conservative things and starts dismantling the narrative by which cultural revolution is being pursued and accomplished. That's the scariest thing to them, and they have to shut it down. They have to silence it. They have to sabotage it as fast as possible, or else they'll lose the culture. The Bohemian Grove, by the way, again, let's just talk about that briefly. The Bohemian Grove can be extraordinarily dangerous, even if a lot of these guys don't believe in Moloch, if they're just playing like they're worshiping Moloch. Oh, what fun. We get together several times a year since 1872, oh, what fun for us to pretend that we're having a pagan ritual in worship of Moloch. Oh, what fun. Last episode, I talked about play as a medium for learning and how it takes 400 repetitions of a behavior to learn something outside of play. But if you're playing, it only takes 10 to 20 repetitions. We talked about that in the last episode. I bring it to your attention again in this episode, because even if these Artists and journalists and politicians and owners or managers, corporate executives of Fortune 500 companies, even if they're just playing at worship to Moloch, you know what? That might be even more dangerous because they learn to serve Moloch in 120th or 140th the time. And if they gather together several times a year for how many years since 1872? A hundred and fifty one. Some of them might not be playing actually after the first year or two of gathering together. After the first five years, ten years, twenty years. You give a cabal, a secret society, 151 years of gathering together several times throughout the year to even just play at worshiping Moloch. There's something more going on than a fun little gentleman's club. Men only, by the way. So there's that. And oh, by the way, can I just reiterate something I've said before, but in this context, so we put things together, I don't think the push for transgenderism is so much about erasing what a woman is as it is about erasing what it means to be a man and making eunuchs out of so many of the competing males in our national herd so that the very wealthiest Men who see themselves at the top of this social Darwinism scheme, who see themselves as gods, are able to prey on unattached young women in society. I think this is also why we don't see accountability for people whose names, men in particular, whose names were in Jeffrey Epstein's client list. Because the men at the very top of this eugenics group, eugenics movement, The men at the very top see it as their right. They see it as being, in fact, what is good if it promotes the promulgation of the very best in breed. Let's have these confused men, as many of them as possible from the riffraff of society, castrate themselves, make themselves into eunuchs. And then only the finest specimens for the females of the species will stay women And then the very wealthy, powerful men who enrich themselves through various schemes with finance and economic policy and legislative sessions and executive actions. The very most wealthy and powerful men oversee the selective breeding program coast to coast in the high schools, in the colleges and the universities. This is not new. This is nothing new. This is... A very old thing. And part of the way that you can be persuaded that this is what it is, is ask yourself how many of these men really are promoting what God says is true and good and beautiful according to his word? If they don't believe God's word and they are playing at the worship of old Canaanite deities, wouldn't you expect at a certain point you uncover that they're living like the men who thousands of years ago in Canaan worshiped those deities, wouldn't you expect that they're going to start more and more to resemble the old Canaanite kings and the nobles who see an unattached woman and they just take her? That's what I would expect. Wouldn't you expect at a certain point that their playing at worshiping Moloch would turn at a certain point to legalizing abortion? I mean, for all we know, the priests who used to offer the children... Uh, on the altar to uh, Moloch, for all we know, they wore white lab coats. Would it change anything? I'm not saying they did, by the way, but would it change anything of the essence of what's being done, what's happening spiritually in those moments? It is curious that 1872 is when the Bohemian Grove, the Bohemian Club started up in San Francisco. 1973 is when abortion was legalized in Roe v. Wade, what was one of the big reasons why the radical left needed to destroy Donald Trump, why they've been threatening conservative Supreme Court justices, why the Democrats have been threatening to pack the Supreme Court to water down conservative picks from previous administrations like Donald Trump's. Wasn't it the overturning of Roe v. Wade that scared them and bothered them and incensed them so much? Wasn't it Nancy Pelosi from San Francisco who was saying that abortion is a sacrament. It was indeed. Very curious, that. Very curious, unless these things go together, because this is part of a 150 years legacy of men who actually do worship Moloch. And they actually do take instructions from this ancient Canaanite deity. They actually do have more in common with his old devotees, From thousands of years ago than they do with Christians in America today, wouldn't that fit that they regard conservative Christian Americans as enemies, just like their predecessors regarded Israel coming into the promised land as an enemy? Wouldn't the promotion of sexual immorality and idolatry in our schools, in our homes, in our places of business, wouldn't that actually fit very neatly with the tactic employed by Balak when he finally prevailed on Balaam to give him something to defeat the Israelites. More on that in our next episode. But one last story. One last story for this episode, and then I got to run. Tucker Carlson has published episode three of Tucker on Twitter, and the embedded tweet made its way to a not-to-be post just this morning tucker on twitter appears to have been posted yesterday or yesterday afternoon more specifically but here it is this morning at not to be and i'm going to go ahead and play it for you and then i have some thoughts in relation to the latest on tucker on twitter here it is cut four take a listen
1: hey it's tucker carlson The Biden administration arrested Donald Trump this afternoon. They had him arraigned and fingerprinted in a Miami courthouse like the accused felon he now technically is. These were the first steps in a process that is designed to put Donald Trump behind bars for the rest of his life. Cable news carried every moment of it live. It's unprecedented, they told us, with what looked like shock. But they weren't shocked. They knew this was coming. Everyone who's paid attention knew it was. What just happened was always going to happen. It's been inevitable since February 16th, 2016. That's the day Donald Trump made a blood enemy of the largest and most powerful organization in human history, which would be the federal government. Despite what you may remember, it wasn't anything that Trump had said about immigration or trade with China or rapists from Mexico. Those are the stories that dominated the headlines that year. Trump's a racist, they screamed, stop him. But inside Washington, that was just noise. None of it really rated. Identity politics doesn't mean much to permanent Washington. What matters then and now is foreign policy. The invasions and occupations and proxy wars. The decisions that determine which global populations will thrive and which will die. The policies that come with trillion dollar price tags. The ones that over time have made the counties around DC the richest suburbs in the world. In Washington, that's what actually matters. And it's obvious when you look carefully. When there's a debate about anything else, for example, the debt ceiling, both sides take their assigned positions and they start yelling. But when Congress decides to start a war, no matter how foolish or counterproductive or obviously disconnected from America's core interests that war may be, when that happens, the leaders of both parties automatically jump behind it like circus clowns. And then they stay there, sometimes for decades, They defend that war relentlessly against all evidence until somebody finally rings the all clear bell and they can begin to admit that actually, maybe it wasn't such a great idea. We meant well, but it just didn't work out. The good news is we've learned a lot of important lessons. In the end, they usually do say something like that, but only after emotions have cooled and the damning details have begun to fade from collective memory. It's an apology that's not actually an apology, much less repentance, and it's years too late to matter in any case. But until then, that's all you're getting. Until then, no dissent is allowed. That's the first rule of Washington. But somehow Trump didn't bother to follow it. He is from out of town, so maybe he didn't know it was a rule, or maybe he just didn't care. Either way, seven and a half years later, we can point to the precise moment that permanent Washington decided to send Donald Trump to prison. Here it is. It's from the Republican candidates debate in Greenville, South Carolina. We should have never been in Iraq. We have destabilized the Middle East. They lied. They said there were weapons of mass destruction. There were none. And they knew there were none. There were no weapons of mass destruction. Okay. All right. We should never have been in Iraq, Trump said. We destabilized the Middle East. Now, by the time Trump said that, a lot of Republican primary voters were starting to reach the same conclusion. How could they not? But it was the next line that doomed Trump to today's arrest. They lied, he said, there were no weapons of mass destruction, and they knew there were none. Now, when he said that, a few in the crowd booed. Most just sat there in silence, stunned. Can he say that? Well, he said it anyway. And by saying that, he sealed his fate. That was the one thing you were not allowed to say, because it implicated too many people on both sides, which on this topic is really just one side. Hillary Clinton was guilty of it, but so was Paul Ryan. All of them were guilty. They all knew. They all lied. And to a person, they hated Donald Trump for exposing them. After that, it was pretty clear that even if he did get elected president, Trump was going to have a very hard time controlling the federal government he was supposed to be in charge of. Most of Permanent Washington decided that thwarting Trump was the single most important mission in their lives. Everything depended on it. Many of them said so publicly, but others didn't say so publicly. In fact, the stealthier ones took another path they ran toward Trump, not away from him. They sucked up to him. They ingratiated themselves, the man they intuitively understood was susceptible to flattery, which Trump is. And they did this in order to subvert his new administration from the inside.
0: Okay, that's all. That's all for this episode. (laughs) You can go and watch the rest of the 13 minutes and 22 seconds. It's not a long episode. Tucker on Twitter is not long, not as long as his Fox program used to be. But 10.8 10.8 million views is what shows up on the embedded tweet over at Not The be. I played for you the first four minutes and 40 seconds. There is, again, another eight minutes plus of content for you to watch. And I don't want to try and steal his content and any of that. But I play this. I play this because it's very curious that Fox News has sent Tucker Carlson a cease and desist letter. Why do I say that that's curious? Well, for a couple of reasons, and let me just say them out loud, and I think you will realize that these are very common sense, these are very intuitive, at face value, they make a lot of sense. Tucker Carlson signed on to a multi-year contract with Fox News. Fox News decided they wanted to take him out of the primetime spot on their channel because advertisers were threatening to boycott, just like The View went to advertisers very quickly to try and break the momentum of Tim Scott's rhetoric on their program, so also Fox News cited advertiser boycotts as the reason for pulling Tucker Carlson. Well, that's a very curious thing to do unless you realize that Fox News is, first and foremost, controlled opposition. Fox News has been for quite some time controlled opposition. Fox News is not your friend, They may have some good talent. They may have some honest people who are very smart, who are very insightful. Fox News is about making money and staying on the air and having power and influence. And the people that they have to cut deals with and keep happy and not offend and not upset wanted Tucker Carlson off the air. Not just off the air on Fox, though. And that's the reason for the cease and desist letter. They didn't just want Tucker Carlson off of Fox News. They wanted Tucker Carlson silent, generally. They didn't want him anywhere. So they're not releasing him from the contract. And if he starts up a show that is even more popular on Twitter, where he is free to say what he really thinks, well, then they haven't accomplished what they were trying to do. And they have to work harder and they have to take him to court. They have to threaten him with legal action for breach of contract. They don't just want him to not speak on Fox News. If it were all about the advertisers, then they wouldn't be sending him a cease and desist letter. But it really, at root, is about wanting to sideline him for this upcoming election and wanting to sideline him more permanently until they figure out how to destroy him behind the scenes because he is also saying things that are very dangerous to the status quo. And this is why in our last episode, I talked about the piece by Mark Tooley titled Deep State Theology over at Providence Magazine. And I said, I don't trust this. By the way, he worked for the CIA for eight years, which is not a deal breaker. It doesn't mean he has no credibility, but his way of dismissing talk of a organized, coordinated, very self-interested, very malicious, ruthless, bureaucratic state in the U.S. government, his dismissing of all of that was too slick. It was too clever by half. And Tucker Carlson here, he might be onto something with Trump's criticism of the Iraq War, the second Iraq War. He may be on to something that the deep state and politicians, both Republican and Democrat, decided he needed to be destroyed in that moment. He may be onto something, Tucker Carlson, but it's bigger than that. It's much more broad than that. I don't think it was just, in my opinion, I don't think it was just Trump saying they lied about the war on terror. I think it's everything. It's everything that the people who are controlled opposition in the Republican Party or among conservatives and the radical leftists on the Democrat side. It's everything that they work together behind the scenes to accomplish slowly, but surely as far as they think the American people will accept it. It's everything Trump was dismantling. It was even just the fact that he was saying people on both sides work together behind the scenes and cut deals. I've got a friend and here's part of how I independently verify this. I have a friend who used to work in politics and he worked on the campaigns of prominent Republicans, one of whom I very much was a supporter of, and he was sent to training when he was part of the official campaign for this very prominent Republican, who I have very recently been very disappointed in for his comments in relation to a certain African nation passing legislation that promises the death penalty for so-called aggravated homosexuality, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz said any nation that has legislation like this is barbaric and it needs to be condemned. And not to be, kudos to them. Joel Abbott over at Not to Be pointed out that, hey, wait a second, (laughs) God commands the death penalty for homosexuals and those who practice bestiality and adulterers and adulteresses. By the way, God himself commands these as penalties. So you're condemning God now? And oh, by the way, let's take a look at aggravated homosexuality, which is actually a homosexual act between an adult male and a minor or a person over the age of, I believe it was 70 years old, or a person who is mentally or physically disabled. Or aggravated homosexuality is a homosexual act that leads to the disability of someone. And here we should have in view, somebody who knows that they have AIDS, for instance, or they have some other sexually transmitted disease and they are trying to spread it, should they get the death penalty? Yes. Yes, they should. And such people are out there and they exist and they do that. So what is Ted Cruz talking about? Well, interestingly, my friend who worked on his campaign was sent off to training, seated right alongside political operatives for prominent Democrats going to the same training and being told. You make all these promises, right? Your candidate needs to make all these promises when they're running for office and they need to not actually accomplish the things that they're promising to do because they're going to just run on those things again, the next election cycle. So just know that, know that on the front end. And my friend was so disillusioned by this that he got out of politics entirely, stopped being engaged and involved. And you need to understand that this is the way that politics works. You need to understand that Tucker Carlson getting the cease and desist letter is how politics works in this country. You need to understand that Donald Trump being prosecuted and investigated ceaselessly is how politics works in this country. This is connected to the whole Moloch thing. This is connected actually to the same kinds of scheming that we read about in Numbers 22 through 24 and then on into 25 as well, which we haven't read yet, but we will soon, Lord willing. People in power, when they see something more powerful coming and they know that it will be opposed to them rather than allied with them, they scheme and they work behind the scenes to try and sabotage. Where they can't overtly and directly confront, what do they do? They work behind the scenes And so the equivalent of a Balak calls up the equivalent of a Balaam. And we actually saw this through COVID as well, where Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci did a public relations campaign urging the need for lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, social distancing, and all the rest. Francis Collins did the Evangelical American Christianity circuit. And again, this was also part of the tactic for sidelining the American church. Go and call for the Balaams in this country to sell out God's people so that God will withdraw his blessing from his people and their enemies can defeat them. Because so long as God is blessing and protecting this people, his people, they can't lose. And their enemies know that. And so we have to understand that The spiritual forces that we do wrestle against, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, are not accidentally sexualizing everything. They're not accidentally making everything about race. They're not accidentally sowing discord among brothers. They're on purpose, systematically, comprehensively trying to create positive association with their Satanism through a kind of operant conditioning. And they're trying to create negative association with the ways of the Lord our God, so that nothing would be as detestable and abominable to you as God's word being applied to questions of justice, how our economy operates, how our government runs, what our domestic policy is, what our foreign policy is. They want you to believe that nothing could be worse, nothing could be more horrible and repressive than Christians writing the laws, enforcing the laws. And interpreting the laws. But it is the same old trick. It's the same trick that it's been from the beginning. Satan is the father of lies. He goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Therefore, we're supposed to put on the whole armor of God, and we're supposed to be sober and vigilant, and we're not supposed to be naive, and we're not supposed to be foolish. We're not supposed to be seeking friendship with the world. We're not supposed to be affirming sin and rebellion and lawlessness. We're supposed to be calling for repentance. We're supposed to be pursuing righteousness. We're supposed to be aspiring to live a quiet life, working with our hands, managing our own affairs, not giving everything to the government to redistribute as if that is charity. That's not charity. That's dereliction of duty. How would it be if I took all the money in my bank account right now and I cut a check and sent it off to the IRS because... There are kids in this country who are hungrier than my kids. There are kids in this country who are not sheltered as well as my kids are sheltered. There are kids in this country who are not getting as good of an education as my kids are getting. That's what the left is ultimately trying to accomplish. And they have solicited the Balaams of this country to tell you it's all the same. Whether you do that or you say, no, no, I need to keep resources to be able to feed my own children, my own family is who I'm supposed to provide for the needs of, first and foremost. And if I don't, I'm worse than an unbeliever, especially if I'm not providing for the needs of my own household. I'm worse than an unbeliever. I'm worse than an infidel. And the left tries to bribe and bully by turn, whichever will work better. The Balaams of this country, flattering them when they're prone to flattery and castigating them if they are sensitive to criticism in return for cursing God's people, if that can be accomplished, or at least driving a wedge between God and his people so that God will not provide for and protect those who are wayward and disobedient and idolatrous. There is no new thing under the sun. Lest you think I am making too much of the passages from Numbers, lest you start to be dismissive because that's the Old Testament. God is God. People are people. Human nature hasn't changed since then. God certainly hasn't changed since then. We should be wise, but that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run as always. Thank you for listening until next time. God bless.